So I want to start off by telling you about a painting. This is a painting called The Bay by Helen Frankenthaler. I know you've all heard of it. Uh, and I know you would be forgiven if you thought, wait, that looks like something my child could do if they poured paint on a canvas. But don't be mistaken. This painting is worth $1.5 million. It is in the Detroit Institute of Art. Now, I did, when I was researching this painting, I did for a brief moment think, hmm, I wonder if I went out to Michael's, got a big canvas, gave it to Liam, see what he could do. Maybe that could be my retirement. I don't know. But in the painter's description of it, she said, it's important for the viewer not to be too encumbered by context and speculation as they gaze on this painting. You don't want to think too critically, otherwise you might think it's just a bunch of blobs on a canvas, and you wouldn't want to do that. This painting is worth $1.5 million. I tell you all that because there was a field trip of middle schoolers from a local school that had visited the Detroit Institute of Arts, and one of the 12-year-olds had taken his chewed gum and placed it on the painting while they were visiting. I, I do have to say, this is the last knock I'm going to have on the painting, I do have to say, I'm not sure how they could tell that there was a wad of chewed gum on the painting. That's different than the painting itself, but maybe you guys are uh, art aficionados. You really love the uh, abstract impressionism that's, um, that's represented here. But evidently, vandalism is kind of a problem for museums. It's actually a thing that they struggle with. It's not just people wanting to steal the art. It's people wanting to vandalize the art. And it's not just abstract impressionism. It's all kinds of things. Like lots of famous art has been vandalized. Paintings and statues that you're aware of have been vandalized by people because there's some instinct in a certain subset of humanity that looks at something beautiful and just kind of wants to take it down a notch. There seems to be in humans this instinct to create, to art and music and beauty and joy. And there seems to be an instinct in humans to want to destroy and tear down art and beauty and joy. Our neighbor has a big stone, and on that stone there's all these smaller rocks that random strangers, as they walk by, reach over, pick up, and place. And it just kind of creates this ever-evolving art installation in the neighbor's yard. And it's just kind of cool. You just, you know, there's these stacked rocks. It's a cool thing. One day Liam and I are walking by, and the thing catches his eye, and he runs over there. I assume, to add his own contribution to the art. Little did I know, his desire was to just shove the whole thing over. And I was horrified. Now, this isn't a $1.5 million art installation, but I marched him right up to the front door of that person's house, knocked on the door. My son has something he wants to say to you. Liam's in tears. I'm sorry. You know, the guy at the home, he had really no idea because he hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with this. He couldn't care less about that. He's just like, people come and stack rocks. I don't know. And I'm like, well, we're very sorry about that. My son is very sorry about that. And I made him march back out to the yard and stack up all the rocks. And every time we drive by that intersection, he's like, oh, that's where I knocked over the rocks. Yes, I hope you have learned your lesson, my child. There's something about this, this beauty that brought out this destruction in my, in my son. Have you ever done that with humans? Sometimes you like to encourage, you like to promote, and you like to, to spread joy and Christmas cheer for everyone. And other times, if someone's mildly annoying you, you want to poke at them and you want to tear them down. Or if you think that their ego is a little too high, you want to pop that a little bit. You want to bring them down. You want to gossip a little bit. You want to bring them back down to earth. We have that instinct in us, both of those things. We want to create beauty. We want to create joy. We want to create goodness in the world. And sometimes we want to bring it down. We have that both in us. And I actually think 
think Christianity is one of the few uh, paradigms through which uh, that we can see the world is this way and humans are this way. There's no, I don't think that there's any other worldview that really explains that humans have this capacity to be in the image of God and do things that God is calling us to do and has this capacity to kind of want to just tear things down, to knock things over. We have this, this desire to stack rocks and we have a desire to shove them over. Something in humans that wants to make and something in humans that wants to break. I was reading this week um, this quote, Einstein, you know, he's got a million quotes that he made and that are attributed to him, so who knows. But one of the things that I heard that he had said is that he marveled at the human capacity for innovation and technology, that they, they could look at the world and they could understand the intricacies of it and they could create something as complex as the atom bomb. And he was terrified at the human capacity for innovation and, 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 and development, and that when they had this amazing capacity, they used it to create something like the atom bomb. Both of those instincts are in us. They're in all of us to some degree. So let's go back one week. We're in this second part of the series called Peace on Earth, and we learned a Hebrew word last week. Many of you already knew this word. Anybody want to make my heart feel joy by telling me what the word is? Shalom. shalom. Did anybody use it this week? Yes. yes, it's so good, isn't it? It's so good to wish somebody shalom. It's weird when you're in Target and they don't know what you're doing, but it's still like it's a good thing. Shalom. It's a good word. Now, can anybody remind me what the word shalom means? Peace, but, but more than that. Oh, Steve must have been at the first sermon. Steve, ruiner of things. Life as it should be, all as it, is, as it should be, shalom. Things are the way that they should be. Did anybody experience any moments of shalom this week? Yeah, it's not very common, is it? Isn't that funny? Now, I had one person in the early service raise their hand. One person out of all of us. One person said, yeah, I think I had a, a moment of shalom this week. Because we cannot force them, we cannot make them, we cannot manufacture them, we cannot coerce people into making them happen for us. They have to be received as a gift from the Father of lights who gives all good and perfect things. And the only thing that you can do with them, you can't hold on to them, you can't hoard them. All you can do is enjoy them and be grateful for them to receive them as a gift. Anybody in your family always taking pictures? Um, you know what I mean? And I'm the one in our family that does this where every time there's something I think that's kind of, you know, memorable happening, I want to pull out my phone and take a picture of it. Uh, and the rest of my family gets very annoyed about this. But you know what happens to me in that moment when I'm trying to capture that moment? I'm taken out of that moment. I'm not participating in that moment. I'm not really experiencing the shalom. I'm trying to capture the shalom and it just can't quite be captured. All is as it should be. It's not just peace. It's not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of harmony. It's not just the absence of need, but it's the presence of abundance. It's not just the absence of fear, but it's the presence of security. And I hope you've had a couple moments, and I hope you will have a couple moments. And I know that that is all that people want for Christmas, especially moms. Just all is as it should be, and it seems like it's so hard to make that happen. But when you get it, just enjoy it because it's going to last about 10 seconds. 
We long for shalom. That's essentially why you do anything that you do. You long for life as it should be. That's why you work. That's why you switch jobs. That's why you try to get a promotion at your work. It's because you want life as it should be. You want to either earn the acclaim or the promotion or the pay so that you can have life as it should be. It's why you go to parties. You hope you have, go to this Christmas party and you hope you get a cool gift uh, or you hope you get a good bonus. You hope that you experience life as it should be even for a brief moment. It's it's why we explore. It's why we get married. It's why we go on vacation so we can explore life as it should be. And all of us who have been on vacation and we're sitting on the, the sunny beaches beneath the palm trees, we're like, oh, I wish this could last forever. But then if you were to move that place, you would lose that moment. It's special because it's a special moment. That's why we go on vacations. That's why we take medication. That's why we learn how to do meditation because we want to experience life as it should be. We want shalom. But it's a gift. Jesus said, my peace I give you, and we just have to receive it as a gift. So I told you last week we're going to look at this different aspect of shalom, of life as it should be, and we just have to receive it. Uh, but there's a cool verse that I want us to explore that I think we're familiar with, but I maybe, maybe would take on a, a new depth of meaning if we understood it in light of what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. This is Jesus' initial teaching He's in the world, he's teaching people, he's got crowds of followers, sits them down, and he says, here we go. And this is one of the first things that he says um, in verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, because they are children of God. The peacemakers are children of God. For my entire life, I have always kind of assumed that meant the get along with people makers. That's kind of how I read that. Uh, blessed are the people who can see conflict and, and reduce it and see tension and reduce it. Blessed are those people. It's sort of like helping others get along, maybe running interference in some family drama. Any of you involved in a family text message thread right now that's trying to work out some holiday details and it's not, you know, people have different ideas and different plans and you feel like, well, I could be the peacemaker in here and I could suggest this and I could interpret this and I could call this person and I could explain this. So, hey, Aunt Judy doesn't want to come to Christmas if Uncle Fred is there. Uncle Fred, will you just please apologize? Apologize to Aunt Judy for, for making fun of her stuffing 40 years ago. Uncle Fred, will you please let go of the fact that Aunt Judy still hasn't forgiven you of that? I know it's a long time ago, but you're just trying to like run interference. It's like you're a hostage negotiator. And that's what we think of as peacemaker, just an everybody get along maker, a smooth things over maker. Can't we all just get along? And of course, per usual, our first thought on anything that Jesus said tends to fall a little short. If we were to take our biblical definition of shalom and we were to insert in it into this passage, I think there is a depth and beauty that comes out of this passage that is not there on first pass. Blessed are the shalom makers. Now, to be fair, Jesus, his words are recorded here in Greek. It's a different Greek word than shalom. It's a Hebrew word. But Jesus would have been speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. It's very likely that Jesus would have been saying, blessed are the shalom makers, for they are children of God. 
the shalom makers. Now, to me, already this is way more exciting because when I think about trying to get Aunt Judy and Uncle Fred to get along or I try to get two people who don't understand each other to try to figure it out and get along, that's draining, that's exhausting. It feels like a, you know, someone who's just trying to negotiate the terms of a hostage deal or something like that. That's exhausting to think about. And that's why so much family stuff can be so full of tension because we're just trying to get everybody to get along. But that's not what this verse is saying. This is versus Jesus telling us, blessed are the shalom makers. For they are children of God. And already I'm more full of energy because there's something substantial here. Shalom making is the part I play in helping you live life as it should be. That's cool. That's an energizing idea. When I think about peacemaking, I'm like, oh, great, exhausting. We're going to have to compromise. We're going to have to figure this out. I'm going to have to interpret their words for this person. I'm going to have to interpret their words for this other person. But when I think about how can I increase the shalom in someone else's life, that's kind of interesting. That's a lot different. And it already sounds more like what God is actually doing in the world. God isn't running around saying, hey, listen, what Aunt Judy really meant when she said this was this. Hey, what Uncle Fred really meant was this. He's actually trying to increase the way life is as it should be in our lives. That's what he is doing in the world. It's not just can't we get along. It's the part I play in helping you move toward life as it should be. Anybody here ever had the experience of their house being broken into? But when I was a kid living at home, there were two times that this happened. I was asking my mom this week, and I recall one time in particular because both times it happened when I was a kid, we were at home, in the home. It's not like we came home. We were in the house. So one time my dad was up. He was working on a car in the garage. My mom and I were asleep, and somebody came in the front door. And my dad was like, hey, what's, you know, started chasing him in, and then he goes out the back door. That's Okay, a little disturbing, a little strange. The second time it happened, the police were chasing somebody who had been breaking into houses in the neighborhood and chased them in. They came in our front door, and then they also exited out the back door. It does beg the question why my parents don't lock the front door occasionally, but I also have this theory that the thieves came in the front door, looked around and thought, oh, there's no flat screens, there's nothing to steal here. This is a bummer of a home, and go right out the back door. So if you've never been broken into, then maybe this won't really relate to you. But the, the, the idea is, is that you're not just being robbed of stuff. You're being robbed of a sense of security. You're really being robbed of a sense of shalom, that your shalom is broken. And if you've had that happen, you know that experience. It's like, oh, it's not just that my stereo is gone. My sense of security is gone. My shalom is gone. I would go as far as to say that most or maybe all sin is shalom breaking. All sin is shalom breaking. All sin pierces that sense of well-being and wholeness that God is trying to create for humanity, which is one of the reasons he's so against it. See, if I were to lie, I would lie to someone so that I wouldn't look bad. That's why I would lie to someone. If I were to gossip, I would gossip to someone so I have an interesting story to tell to make me more relatable than that other person I'm gossiping about. If I were to lust, it would be because there's an object that's desirable that I want to have. And I wouldn't be thinking about what's the bigger impact of any of these decisions here. I'd be thinking just about like, how does this impact me in the short term? But if sin breaks shalom, literally disturbs the peace, then it behooves us to understand that a lie actually demeans the person being lied to. 
It says to them, you cannot be trusted with the truth. You can't handle the truth, and I can't handle telling you the truth. Gossiping actually shows contempt for the person being gossiped about. It shows contempt for them to say that their personal stumblings or failures or foibles are fodder for our casual social interaction. Lust objectifies the person being lusted after. It's saying that that human is less important than the satisfaction of my desire. It's wild to think about. You see how sin is shalom-breaking. And I think one of the things is that we've lost the language of sin in our modern culture, in our modern society, and we can't explain this. We can only view things through the, the idea of like, well, this didn't harm anybody else, but we don't know because it also harms us. I don't think we understand to what degree sin breaks the wholeness and well-being of the community around us, even if it's not directly involving those people. Sin is shalom-breaking in others in us. And of course, we all do this thing, but it's such a small sin. It's just a small thing. It's not a big deal. I mean, what harm does it cause? I think sin, I think shalom-breaking sin is like finding a hair in your takeout. Some of you psychopaths maybe can eat around it, but for me, it kind of ruins the whole meal. You're literally not hungry anymore if you find a stranger's hair in your food. It changes your appetite. Sin is like that. That's how, that's how deeply problematic it is. And nobody's going to say, well, it was a small hair. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a small lie. It doesn't matter if it's a small piece of gossip. It doesn't matter if it's a small lust. Like, do you think the person being lied to, oh, well, it was just a small lie, so that's no big deal. No, it still hurts. You think a person being lusted after is like, well, I only lusted a li little bit. No, it's still weird. It's gross. What are you doing? Get your mind out of the gutter. Do you think the person being gossiped about feels good because it was just a little bit? No, it's not. It doesn't matter that it's small. Sin still breaks shalom. It still breaks it. But they'll never find out. Well, you don't know that. First of all, you're really bad at knowing whether or not somebody else would find out. In fact, most of the time, people know when you're lying to them because you're not very good at lying. You may think you're good, and the people who think they're really good are actually really bad. Have you ever... Have you ever run into somebody that just creeps you out? Uh, women have a great radar for this. Sometimes Karina will be like, that guy creeps me out. And, well, why? Something about the way he looks at women. And you think you're hiding it, but you're not, because sin is shalom-breaking. It breaks the peace, the flourishing, the wholeness of all of that. A large chunk of Hebrew Bible is warning. So much of the Old Testament is warning. It's thousands of years of God saying, all right, will you please, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, will you please go tell the people to stop doing that because it's ruining everything. That's a lot of the Old Testament. And it's just story after story of these prophets showing up saying, hey, listen, God has said to stop doing that. Oh, okay, we definitely will we'll definitely not do that anymore. And then they immediately go do more of that. And God's like, listen, I will give you guys some time to get your act cleaned up, but you got to get it cleaned up. you got to stop messing around. And so God gives his people at least a thousand years to try to end what they're doing. Stop all that garbage. Stop it. And they don't, and they just keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and they keep doing it. And finally, God's like, okay, fine. You know what? I've been telling you for a thousand years that I'm going to do this. Fine. Hammer's about to fall. And he sends in this nation of Babylon to take over. 
They move in and they uproot everyone that they think will benefit their country and they displace them and bring them back to Babylon. It's what so many stories in the uh, Old Testament are about. The book of Daniel is all about that. It's about promising young men that were uprooted from their homeland and replanted in Babylon. In fact, in January, that will be what the Bible class is about. It'll be about exploring like, what it looks like to live as someone who's been uprooted from their homeland. So these Babylonians haul off anyone they think will be useful, but they leave behind guys like the prophets because they don't find them useful. So if this ever happens in today's day and age, they'll just ignore guys like me. They'll take all you guys because you're smart and professional. They'll be like, we don't need preachers in Babylon, so yeah, go ahead, stay home. So they leave behind guys like Jeremiah. And so you've got all these people who are displaced. I mean, they're in a different culture, they're different language, different society, different climate, completely displaced. And they're like, we don't know what to do. How are we supposed to please God? We don't have any place to worship. We, don't, we can't do any of the festivals. How are we what does God want us to do in this strange place now? And so Jeremiah writes a letter to them. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. This is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I think it's interesting that he says, I, God, carried him into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is cool. Any guesses as to what the phrase peace and prosperity, what single Hebrew word that phrase could be translated into? Shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. Because if the city shaloms, then you too will shalom. You want to be a shalom maker? Then seek the shalom of the city around you. Seek the shalom of your community, of your neighbors. Seek the shalom of your culture. This is so interesting because Christians often have one of two responses to culture. When you look at the culture around us and you watch any news or you watch any popular culture stuff, there's one of two responses that people have. One is Christians are often very adversarial to culture. Culture's bad. Bad, 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 bad. Let's avoid culture. Let's not have anything to do with culture. Let's stay away from culture. Let's create our own subculture. Let's hide from culture. The other response a lot of Christians have is let's assimilate. Let's just become part of culture. Let's get culture to like us and let's hope that nobody looks down on us. Let's try to distance ourselves from those things in the scriptures and those things about God that maybe will make us look bad in front of the culture. And they assimilate. And so there's this adversarial approach and there's this assimilating approach where you can hardly tell the difference between some Christians and culture. And there's this other approach where anything culture does, those Christians do exactly the opposite. Jeremiah says neither of those are the right response. He says there's a third way. What you do as Christians, you enter culture and you elevate it. You bless it. You shalom it. You seek the shalom of the city. The, the fight culture types get so annoyed with the embrace culture types. And the embrace culture types want to distance themselves from the fight culture types. And Jeremiah says none of that's right. Don't be absorbed into the city, but don't avoid the city. Seek the shalom of the city. That sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the 
shalom makers who enter into the world like he did and elevate, not distance, not condemn, elevate, not assimilate, elevate. But, but we're not foreigners and exiles like Daniel and the people to whom Jeremiah were writing. So, I mean, that doesn't really apply to us. We've got to figure out something else. I want, I want you to see uh, one last verse as we wrap up this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's you. That's us in this culture. We are foreigners and exiles. Abstain from sinful desires. Listen to this wording. Which wage war against your soul. Don't be shalom breakers. Don't, don't, don't go down that road. That's not helpful to you. Don't stay away from all that. He says, verse 12, live such good. The word good is literally beautiful. Live such beautiful lives, creative, abundant, flourishing lives among the pagans, the ethnos, the cultures, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will look at your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Don't be shalom breakers. Don't get pulled under by sin. Be shalom makers. I read good deeds in this verse, and I tend to think like, okay, a good deed that's like, I don't know, putting my shopping cart away and, and don't share free refills with all my family members. That's what good deeds are, right? But I think what he's talking about is make shalom. Like, this is our mission. This is how we are children of God. This is, this is what God is doing in the world, by the way. He's making shalom, and I start to get excited. Uh, we were crunching some of the numbers about our church family. And um, during a regular week, we'll have about 220 different people who are participating in our church services uh, on a given week. 220 different people. Imagine if there were 220 people who were on mission to be shalom makers in their offices and in their families and in their neighborhoods. Imagine that. If we were to run into people that you know at Target, oh, hey, yeah, I know them too. And they would say, things like, oh man, they're the greatest and they do these things and they're wonderful. They're creating flourishing and well-being and wholeness. How cool would it be if that was our reputation in this community? You know what our reputation is right now? Now, where is that church again? <laughs> That's where we are right now because I don't know that we've decided that we are on mission from God to elevate the culture around us. We're just kind of doing our thing rather than saying, I want to create life as it should be for the people around me, for my family, but for my neighbors, for my community, for my schools, my office. What if the community was convinced that we were here for its benefit? Oh, how cool would that be? How awesome would that be? Listen, we can stack rocks and create beauty and art and creativity in the world, or we can knock them over. But I think that's the only two choices that we have. I think everything we do is creating something good, being shalom makers, or, or being shalom breakers. I, I don't think there's really a third option. I don't think there's a third way. And God has tasked us with creating those kinds of moments for other people. What a mission! What a cool thing, and it's not a December thing, it's not a Christmas thing, it's an all-the-time thing, that you get to be someone's moment of shalom, and I hope that we can do that this week. I hope that this week that you can be out there, and someone, when, they, when they're, who's going to ask them if they had a moment of shalom, but if it happens, they can say, yeah, you know what, yeah, because somebody from this spiritual community did something that elevated their well-being, their flourishing, their wholeness. Father in heaven,